Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. The second story concerns a Halifax horse combination that was intercepted again by Condors and the glider forced to cast off and ditch about 140 miles west of Cape Finisterre. The three-man crew, Sergeants Antonopoulos, Hall and Conway, were adrift in a small rubber dinghy for 11 nights and days, but their spirit never failed, despite extraordinary privations. Antonopoulos narrates their experience quite simply. Here is his story in his own words. The first few hours after the attack, we were too occupied to give much thought to the series of incidents which had led to our being in a dinghy, buffeted by a rough swell, 140 miles west of Cape Finisterre. For two of us, Dennis Hall and myself, this was a quasi-humorous repetition of a similar happening only a week previously, when the tow rope snapped and forced us to ditch in the same spot of the ocean, in the company of Major Cooper, our squadron commander. This second time, two enemy planes, which we took to be Condors, had finally compelled the tug pilot to request us to cast off, after a gallant but hopeless struggle. During the fight, I did my utmost to assist the tug by following the evasive twists and turns with all possible accuracy, while Hall in the co-pilot seat was alert to every move and ready to take control in case of any failure on my part. As for the third man, Paddy Conway, he had apparently been roused from a quiet rest while eating a Mars bar in the back of the glider. Good old Paddy. He dashed up and down the length of the glider, giving us a running commentary on the fight and hits with appropriate epithets, and even going so far as to poke his rifle through one of the portholes. The ditching went well, and everyone acted as per drill. So much happening. The grabbing of odds and ends, the box with the thermos flask, the ground sheet, the small haversack, all the time wrestling for footholds as we launched the dinghy, and fighting to keep away from the heaving wreck under which we drifted so persistently. The rope became entangled and we had to scramble back onto the fuselage to cut it free and hitch it to the small tailplane, eventually cutting it loose as the whole glider broke up and salvaging a few odd sticks of wreckage as they floated by. Then came the endless drifting, our hopes still high, all eyes searching the horizon, still quite confident, at least outwardly, that we could not fail to be picked up this evening. The wind rose that night and large waves swamped us repeatedly. The dinghy was full of water, we were soaked to the skin, and so we were to remain from then on. I lost my temper and told the elements what I thought of them. Dennis grinned and Paddy laughed, and we huddled together, shivering till morning. All day we searched the horizon around us. Once we heard a plane overhead but could see nothing. The sky was clouded over, the sea choppy, and towards evening it was unanimously decided that we should hoist sail. So I erected a Heath-Robinson arrangement with two of the salvage sticks stuck T-wise in the flask box and the ground sheet stretched over it, Paddy being very dubious of my granny knots. Dennis Hall took charge of the rationing and opened up one of the flasks of tea. The tea was horrible as the milk had curdled and we had to throw the whole lot away, our stomachs being already upset by continual retching as we bobbed up and down hour after hour. We felt a little happier that evening as the wind pushed us along with the drogue leaving a tiny wake behind us. At least we were getting somewhere. The nearest land was east, and we were travelling southeast. We ended the day in full song with Paddy as leader. The third day dawned after a quiet but very cold night, 
and we were glad to see the sun rising into a clearer sky. We sorely needed warmth, for we were chilled and hungry. Dennis distributed some food, a few raisins remaining from one of our air crew rations, two Horlicks tablets each, and a little water from one of the packs. To while away the time, Paddy began telling us the story of his life. We listened distractedly with eyes on the horizon until we heard a faint drone in the distance. All stopped talking, and the sound grew louder. Yes, a plane was approaching. Two planes were approaching, and we were right on their track. I grabbed the very light pistol and waited for the best moment to fire. We all three realised at the same instant that the two planes were really one of our own Halifaxes with a horser in tow. I fired ahead of the tug, and again as best as I could behind the tug and the glider. Surely the rear gunner or the glider pilots must see it. But there was not a sign from either, though they were lower than a thousand feet. Another cold and rough night longing for the dawn to be able to see and hope and to be warm. These nights were frightening and we hated them. In the morning Paddy informed us that he had a feeling we would be picked up that day. We believed him, for of course we wanted so much to believe that. We did see the ship too, very close, less than 400 yards away, we thought. Paddy fired the pistol several times, and he fired at it. We waited, but no, he just sat back and called the crew a few names, and we were sure that they must be German anyway. In the afternoon, the wind grew stronger and the swell increased. We were hungry. Dennis and I were childishly attempting to fish with bent pins and chewing gum when a huge wave came at us like a wall. The next thing I knew, I was fighting my way from under the dinghy, Amidst a shroud of ground sheets and strings, I got out at last and found Paddy beside me. Together we tried to right the dinghy, and with both our weights we pulled and heaved on the hand grips and got the dinghy vertically on its side, but it flopped back the wrong way up. We succeeded at the second attempt, and then heard the voice of Dennis, who had been missing all this time. He appeared floating towards us with one of the Russian packs in his arms. He had grabbed it as it sank, and we felt very grateful. After a great effort, I managed to clamber back into the dinghy and help my two companions in turn, not forgetting the ration box. What a sorry plight we were in, with the dinghy full to the brim, the sail hanging over the side, only one half-empty ration pack and Paddy without a dry cigarette. It took us ages to bail all the water out of the dinghy and how weak and exhausted it left us, but how thankful we were at having survived that dreadful ordeal. That evening we all joined in prayer as the sun was going down. That night, Paddy was very ill. The constant strain of sitting so long in the same position was affecting his back. He moaned quietly in a half-sleep. Dennis and I put him between us and tried to make a rest for him by joining hands behind his back. I repaired the sail when I thought the wind had dropped sufficiently. From then on, conditions grew worse. With little water left, we were rationing ourselves to an egg cupful a day, instinctively looking away while waiting for the tiny container. Each one made his small mouthful last a long time, and none of us could bear to watch another one drink. The Horlicks tablets were unchewable with so little saliva to dissolve them. We looked thin and haggard, and salt water rashes began to appear on the most tender parts of our bodies. Our tongues were thick. Paddy was often delirious. Dennis kept very quiet, though he and I said much to each other with our eyes. The dinghy was losing air by this time, and toppling her up three or four times a day with the bellows was an exhausting routine. We saw a boat, or a plane every day, but we had no very pistol now, only fluorescent powder which we trailed hopefully behind us from time to time. One day we saw a fine sailing boat, just the type of craft that would be sent in answer to our prayers, we thought, but no luck. The bright sun was now affecting my eyes, and at night I could see as many as six moons in a row. Paddy grew worse. 
very weak, at times unconscious, at times delirious, and always feeling that today we would get picked up. On the ninth night, we saw a large ship with all lights ablaze and we regained hope. At the same time, all my limbs became completely and inexplicably paralysed, but I managed to drink the water with which we had all agreed to celebrate the occasion. Well, was it not obvious that we must be very near land? But in the morning there was nothing to be seen but the interminable ocean. We had less water than ever now, and the dinghy was deflating fast. Every two hours I kept toppling up with the bellows. My heart would pound, and my ears felt as if they would burst. Another plane appeared that day, and once more we were not seen. The eleventh morning dawned very quietly, not a breath of wind. Soon fog enveloped us completely. I suggested paddling a little, but Dennis was too weak, and we gave it up after a short while. Besides, it seemed useless. Then, about noon, Dennis and I looked at each other. We had heard a sound, the sound of a motor, a slow beat. It must be a ship. We dare not whistle, in case they should take it for a fog warning and turn away. Then suddenly we saw it, a small trawler making straight for us. A man was leaning on the rail. We blew our whistles now all right, but with faint blows. Even Paddy stirred. At last we had been seen. The man at the rail shouted in some foreign language. I shouted back, non comprendo, inglesis. I still do not know what language I was supposed to be speaking, but soon we were alongside and I was on board. Dennis followed and the sailors lifted Paddy out with ease. Aqua, I said, remembering some long forgotten Latin. Agua, corrected one of the men. What did it matter? They gave us water. We learned later that our rescuers were Spanish and that we had been picked up 20 miles off Oporto, Portugal. The three of us have often wondered since if we should have made land by ourselves in two or three days had we not been picked up. But at the time, we certainly had no such ambitions. While the pilots were delivering the horse gliders to North Africa, the operational training was continuing in the Mascara Plain. The American wing of Dakotas and the Waco gliders were now in full supply, and the glider pilots were going through a makeshift training programme that I had drawn up. My main problem was to get the men into the air, for I alone knew the limitations of the glider pilots and the immensity of the task they had been set. I am the last person to suggest that risks should not be taken in war, but they must be undertaken only after a full consideration of all the circumstances and with a complete knowledge of the facts. In this instance, as I judged it, the task my men had been set had been conceived in complete ignorance of the facts and solely to gratify certain ambitions. The plan that had been evolved was this. The glider force was to be towed 300 to 400 miles across the Mediterranean to Sicily. The complete force was to arrive at its target at about 10pm and to do this the aircraft must fly three miles distant and parallel to the coast of Sicily before releasing the gliders, which would be required to land an air landing brigade with arms and guns on the rock-strewn shores of Sicily close to Syracuse by moonlight. Once on the ground, this force was to disembark from the gliders, capture a bridge crossing the canal, and then move on and take the town of Syracuse. All this was to proceed by some seven hours the main landings by the 8th Army on the beaches of Sicily. Brigadier Pip Hicks and the 1st Air Landing Brigade were enthusiastic at the prospect, and they were confident they would be able to fulfil their task. But they never really understood the immensity of the task, since they knew little or nothing of the technical requirements of an air landing by glider, let alone the added difficulties of landing by night in completely unknown territory. The popular Major General, Hoppy Hopkinson, had sold an airborne landing to General Montgomery, 
who knew even less than Hopkinson of the required conditions for success. All he knew was that there was an airborne force, therefore by all means let us use it. The sea was between him and Sicily, and I have no doubt that he saw in this unit a method of making a quick landing and a lead-in for the 8th Army. So far as the glider effort was concerned, he could not have known of its muddled background, the inadequacy of the training facilities, or whether the pilots were efficient or otherwise. He was given the possibility and he took it, solely on the advice of an amateur pilot who was bent on getting his force into action, come what may. The conditions that the pilots lived under were similar to those of the ordinary Tommy, pup tents into which they crawled at night. I feel sure they were as conscious as I was that we were regarded as a sort of privileged nuisance, and this being so, we were given the minimum in transport and other help which would be the normal requirements of aviators. That a pilot needs certain conditions to make his life tolerable and to enable him to be in top flying form was beyond the comprehension of those who had set him this almost impossible task. Nevertheless, under these unhappy conditions, the force made every effort to train itself. Their patience and enthusiasm was nothing short of miraculous. Only I knew how frighteningly inadequate it was, and the strain was appalling. All the training was concentrated on attempting to land a load full of guns, jeeps and men in complete darkness, and I know only too well that the necessary standard was never reached. How could it have been in the space of three weeks? I was given permission to fly to Malta to pick up a lift in a night bowfighter so that I could fly along the coast and make observations of the target. This was a month before the intended attack and it was an experience not easily forgotten. I was flown by an Australian crew of an RAF night fighter squadron and stood between the pilot and the navigator with intercom earphones on my head. We roared into the night at about 4am and flew at 50 feet above the sea which was lit by moonlight and sped along the coast which lay in a dark mass below. We roared up and down, and I tried from my awkward position to make out where and how we were going to land, but I could see nothing. Eventually, at dawn, we turned away and flew home. At one point, the Australian pilot spotted some shipping in the moonlit path of the sea, and we had a few breathtaking moments as he started ship-strafing, but we began to lose our oil pressure in the port engine, so decided to make for Malta as quickly as we could. I enjoyed all this excitement, but alas, I knew that my journey had achieved nothing. I returned to my little force none the wiser and waited philosophically for the moon to change, for the next quarter would see us on our way. I need hardly say that I was deeply apprehensive. The training continued and each night, standing on the flare path, I was deeply moved by the enthusiasm and energy of the pilots as one by one their gliders were slowly tugged off into the darkness and later landed safely. At one airfield, Relizzane, which was condemned as a danger spot for cholera infection, the pilots slept on the concrete floor with mosquitoes stinging them all night. The food was limited and almost inedible. The heat was intense. By ten in the morning it was unbearable in the cockpits and flying was out of the question. All the men could do was lie about and sweat. It is to their everlasting credit that their sense of humour and their courage kept the training programme to schedule. There was much to be done on the landing zones, for each time a glider landed, it had to be manhandled so that another could land after it. Many were the nights that I swung a tail or hung onto a wingtip. The flare path presented an extraordinary problem. Not only were the flares put out by the Arabs, but they would come and steal the containers also, so that sometimes, when we arrived for training at night, we could not provide flares for the pilots to land by. Any pilot or member of the RAF will know that such conditions must have been very exacting for men in the pupil stage of flying training. In spite of it all, they carried out their duties like veterans. While the men flew, 
I had regular consultations with the generals and brigadiers about the main plan of the battle, for it was imperative that I should have an up-to-date picture of the military plan. The overall plan was that the assault on Sicily would be conducted by two armies, American and British. The British 8th Army were to attack the southeastern corner, but move north via the east coast, and the Americans would do the same on the west coast. So far as was known, the German defensive plan was to use the majority of the Italian army for defending the coast, with two Hermann Goering divisions in mobile reserve. Thus, it was assumed that once these two divisions were committed, all troops in Sicily would be fully engaged. The task of the 1st Airborne Division was divided into three brigade attacks. The first, on the night of July the 9th and 10th, was to be carried out by the 1st Air Landing Brigade, a lone glider operation with no parachutists included, with the object, as I've already mentioned, of taking the bridges near Syracuse and capturing Syracuse itself. The second attack would take place on the following night when one parachute brigade would be dropped in the area of Augusta with the task of capturing the port. The third attack would be carried out by the first parachute brigade supported by horse and Waco gliders with guns and jeeps on board. This was to be a drop into the Catania plain round Primasole bridge which is to be held until the advancing 8th army moved up the east coast road to meet them when they would debouch onto the Catania plain. So far as I was concerned the first operation was the major one in that the whole of my force of glider pilots was committed to it. In view of the shortage of aircraft, the US wing demanded they should not be required to fly closer to the shore than 3,000 yards because of the extensive radar reception, and that the entire flight of 400 miles should be made at 100 feet above the sea, climbing to 1,500 feet shortly before arriving on the Sicilian coast. My task was as follows. 1. To give my pilots confidence enough in themselves to carry out the flight to Sicily and to land. 2. To land by moonlight on a rock-strewn beach after being released at between 1,500 and 2,000 feet. 3. The gliders to be landed in groups of battalions in order that the air landing brigade should be able to fight as a brigade group. 4. The loads in the gliders were to be infantry, jeeps and artillery. For the Catania landings, the horses were to land jeeps and six-pounder guns in support of the parachute brigade. The total glider-borne effort in this second operation was to be eight Waco gliders and seven horses, towed by Halifaxes and Albemarles of the Royal Air Force. It was hoped that the independent parachute company could be dropped on both beachheads to lay out flare paths so that the pilots could have some way of recognising where they were to land. As soon as I found that the operation was based on moonlight landings, I had a signal sent back to England saying it was imperative that air crews be practised in this form of landing. This instruction was completely disregarded and the pilots arrived without any night training, whatever. The whole of it covered a little under three weeks and to attain the requisite standard in the time seemed, to me, almost impossible. As preparations for the Sicilian assault progressed, so demands for more gliders for the air landing brigade increased. In consequence, the pilots available had to be stretched out over the gliders and my hair was turning grey with trying to ensure that each glider had a pilot capable of flying under the difficult conditions imposed on him. Today, I am pretty well sure that many entered the cockpits who had had little or no training at all in Africa. Our next move was to be a tow from the Mascara Plain to the airstrips at Seuss and Sfax on the Tunisian coast, from which bases we were to fly to Sicily and the assault. The tow to Tunisia was 600 miles in length over the Atlas Mountains. It was a long, long flight, and to us pilots it seemed endless. There was one fatal crash when the tail came off one of the Waco gliders, and the entire crew and a load of 13 soldiers were killed. 
However, on the whole, the Armada reached the landing strips well and in good order, and soon the aircraft were lined up for the great day which we awaited with excited anticipation. I believe that our position had been sighted to give the impression that our target was Sardinia, which was opposite the strips where we were stationed, and I had been told that Sardinia was packed with German troops expecting invasion. Soon the moon came up to its first quarter and gradually grew larger and larger. Two or three days before the date of the operation, a wind got up and blew at gale force. I was perplexed to know what height I should give for the gliders to cast off for landing, for to date we had been landing in dead still air. Night after night we had practised in dead calm, and now we were faced with conditions for which we were completely unprepared. I slept little those nights and waited for the wind to abate, but it didn't. I felt desperately alone in trying to make my decision. I left it to the very last moment. The difficulty was that I had no telephonic communications with the six strips on which the gliders were stationed. Somehow or other, the height would have to be put around by word of mouth. I have to admit that I could not decide whether to instruct the pilots to go much higher or to keep a lower height than 2,000 feet. The critics today say that one should always have too much height, and I think they are right but I was faced with the fact that we could not put the gliders too far inland because of olive groves and cliffs, and I didn't want them to overshoot. Eventually, I put the height up 500 feet, making a total of 1,900 feet above the sea. On the eve of the attack on Sicily, the wind was blowing at 45 miles an hour across our course. I went down to the shore to be alone, and there found the pilots eagerly waiting for the moment when the order to take off would be given. All that remained was to brief them with the plan, as I looked at the wind whipping up the sea, I wondered how many gliders would break away from the ropes which attached them to the tugs. Those were strange times. We, the glider pilot regiment, were to be towed by Americans, and the tugs and gliders would be Anglo-American. In consequence, all the ground staff were from the United States Air Force. One day, one of my officers asked me to come and have a look at his glider, and when I arrived he said, Please look at the intercom, sir. The Union seems to have been tampered with. He pointed to the fitting and I saw black insulating tape bound round the wire. Well, I said, what does that mean? I will unwind the tape for you to see, sir. He did, and then I realised that the wire had been cut. What on earth is this? I exclaimed. Well, sir, I think you'd better look at some of the others. Let's get hold of an American officer first, I said, and we did. We then found that several aircraft had had the intercoms tampered with, and after some investigations, it was discovered one of the fitters was an Italian-American who had taken action to prevent us attacking his country of origin. We rebound the intercom connections and called it a day. Another thing happened, which at that time I shall always remember. One day I was passing the tent of one of the wing commanders, Peter May, who had been an instructor in the Royal Air Force for some years and whom I knew well. As I passed, the ground flaps were up and he could see my feet, on which I was wearing a very nice pair of chucker suede boots. The wing commander asked me into the tent. I say, George, I like those boots. May I have them if you don't come back? I was somewhat stunned for a moment, but said, Oh, yes, of course, as casually as possible. Just ask my batman, Private Gaul, and he'll give them to you. I mention this because it gives an idea of what another airman thought of the possibilities of our operation. The odd thing was that when I did return from Sicily, I found that my boots were missing, and my batman told me that Peter May had asked for them after I'd gone. Perhaps the greater irony was that he put them on when he took off in his Albemarle and was shot down and never seen again. Presumably, he went to the bottom of the sea wearing my boots. My operations room was an old Nissan hut, and here were many photographs of the landing zones and beaches in Sicily. It was in this hut that I briefed the pilots for the flight plan. 
One day, in walked Alastair Cooper, having had many adventures since he left England. I asked him what his night-flying practice had been since he left, and he answered, none. And neither had any of the pilots who had flown with him. It was incredible to think that not one horse pilot had had the chance to get in a full practice at night, despite the fact that it was known that he was going to be asked to land on a target 400 miles away from Africa with guns and jeeps and in pitch darkness. I hesitated before I gave Alistair his briefing. I told him he would have to carry a jeep and six-pounder and the Commander Royal Artillery through to the Catania plane and that he would have to land properly without lights. He looked at me and said, All right, sir, don't worry. We won't let you down, sir. He took off on the second night of the assault with a six-pounder anti-tank gun and its crew and was never to return. In him, I lost a wonderful officer and a friend. I was told that his target, Halifax, was hit by flak and exploded. The rope broke and in attempting to land, he crashed into the riverbed where he and all the occupants were killed. One of the main points in the operation on the Ponte Grande was the attempt to land six horse gliders, three on one side of the canal and three on the other, in order that a coup de main might capture the bridge. The remaining 130-odd Wacos were to land, as had been originally planned with the 1st Air Landing Brigade in battalion groups. And so, the stage was set. Next day, we were to try to carry out this most difficult of operations. As I sat on the beach, watching the wind and the blue of the sea and the whiteness of the wave tips, I thought back on all the air training at Tilshead, the military training, the speeches, the discipline and so on, and I realised that all that remained was for the glider pilots to prove themselves in action, as total soldiers. As I see it now, all those years ago, perhaps it was best that their patience had been tested to the limit during training, because if they had not had to joke about the tiresome limitations of the training, lack of equipment and inadequate airfields, they might not have proved so worthy as they were destined to be during the next few days. At least I felt we had done our best, and all we could do now was try to carry out our orders. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus.